0: Good to be here with you this morning, C3 family. My name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I'm really glad to, to be here this morning for us to jump in and uh, dig into our study through the book of Romans. That's right. Last week, we began a new study through the book of Romans, and today we are going to pick up halfway through Romans chapter 1. So you can go there on your phone, your Bible, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab. One of the Bibles on the row there, it's page 939 on the Bible there, uh, in the Bible there, if you want to follow along with us. And uh, as I said, we started through this new series in Romans this last week. And if you remember the sermon from this past week, or if you weren't here to hear it, um, Seth got up and he shared a story at the outset of his sermon about how he was hanging out with a bunch of pastors and they were talking about, okay, well, if, if you could only preach two to three books in the Bible, that was all you had access to in order to preach, which ones would you choose? And many of them would choose the book of Romans. And why is that? That's because this book that we are studying through as a church family is perhaps the most complete and comprehensive explanation in Scripture and all of Scripture of man's sin, of Christ's salvation, of God's righteousness, and how all of that fits together. The book of Romans is the magnum opus of Paul's letters. This book is rich with doctrine. It's dripping with grace. It is insanely practical for the sinner and the saint. And so Seth opened up to the beginning of Romans 1 this past week and he walked us through verses 1 through 17 and there we see Paul say that he had been wanting to visit this Roman church for a long time so that they could receive mutual encouragement. And he also wanted to visit them because he wanted to preach to them the good news about Jesus. That's his motivation. That's what we saw last week. That's his motivation to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to let everyone everywhere know that in Jesus, because of Jesus, a person can be declared blameless and righteous before God through faith. And that really sets the stage for where we're going to go today as we continue in Romans chapter 1. But it's also going to set the stage for where we go in this entire book study. Because if you look at Romans from a high level church, what you will see is that this book is really an explanation of the gospel. It is a long form treatise on what the gospel actually means. We'll see that today because as we jump into verse 18 in the middle of chapter 1, we'll see that the gospel is needed. The gospel that, that motivated Paul to write to the Romans, the gospel is needed because there's a reality of God's rightful anger toward sin and man's, unright- and man's unrighteousness, and it'll build from there. We'll see that the Gentiles are without excuse, and we'll see that the Jews are without excuse because the law can't save. Man can't work out his own righteousness. He needs something outside of himself. He needs faith. And we get into Romans 4, we're going to see that, that faith has always been the means by which God justified his people. This isn't new, It's just now reached its final and true fulfillment in Jesus. And so through Jesus, Romans 5, we are justified and we receive grace and salvation and forgiveness from God. And that changes how we live, Romans 6. We no longer live for sin. We live according... To the Spirit, we don't live according to the law. We look forward, Romans eight, to our final redemption and inheritance, waiting for us in heaven, where Christ has gone before us. In Romans nine through eleven, this is God's plan to rescue and redeem both Jew and Gentile, and twelve and on. In light of that, how does the church then operate and live? And so, so just to give a frame of reference, that's that's the the book. It's an unpacking of the gospel. It is explaining and 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 getting into the nitty-gritty detail of how this all works. And so today, our aim is to begin the journey of unpacking that. And as we'll see, it begins rather bleak. So let me pray, and we'll take a look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Father, make much of yourself this morning. The gospel is ultimately about you. The gospel is ultimately about you, about how you conquer man's sin, about how the only substitute that was capable of covering over the depth of sin was the sinless life of Jesus. And so I pray that we hold on with hope to that as we come face to face with the reality of the truth of the gospel, which is that outside of Jesus, we have no And we hold on to the fact that because of Jesus, we can see that, we can celebrate the work that he's done on our behalf. We pray these things for his honor and glory. Amen. Let's look at Romans chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, right out of the gate, church, this morning, we see verse 18. Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. If you remember, if you can look back in your text to verse 17, we saw last week, verse 17, that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And now, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed. Why put those two things side by side? Because in order for the good news of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming to have any weight, any merit, any goodness to it, there must be a divinely disastrous consequence for the absence of it. Maybe putting it a different way, in order for the good news of Jesus to make sense and to actually be good news, there must be something against which the gospel stands that causes us to be in desperate need of what it provides. And what is that? Verse 18, the wrath of God toward the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now listen, this isn't a popular topic, right? There is not a section when Lifeway used to exist where you could go over and go, oh my God, it's the wrath of God section. This is my favorite. Like I don't know anybody who's adopted verse 18 as their life verse. Like no one's getting this tattooed on their arm. Like, you don't go to Hobby Lobby and go, gosh, that would look so great in the bathroom. It's Romans 1.18. Let's put that on the wall so that everyone who comes to our house and is sitting there goes like, oh, God, the, the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind. Lovely, right? This, this is not everyone's favorite verse, right? But it's a truth that we must embrace in order for the gospel to make sense. And that is this, that God is, yes, a God of love. He is. He's God of patience. He's God of mercy. He's God of incredible wisdom and forgiveness, but he is also a God of wrath. And those things are not incompatible with one another. They're not. Now, God having wrath doesn't mean that he's sitting in heaven angry, waiting for all of us to trip up so that he can throw a lightning bolt from heaven and, and zap us. I mean, goodness, if that was the case, none of us would be here. At least I wouldn't. I don't know about you guys, but on my best days, I'm usually 9.30 in the morning by the time at latest that I deserve to be smote from heaven, okay? So so God being a God of wrath doesn't mean that he is just sitting angry, fuming, mad all the time. It means that he is decidedly against sin. It means that he is decidedly against unrighteousness. It means that he is decidedly against ungodliness, and he will not stand it or tolerate it forever. There will come a time where there is divinely sanctioned consequence for those things at some point in the future, either when Christ comes in, the, in judgment over the world or when we die and we stand before him. But this text is also telling us that there is present consequence for those things while we live and breathe. So God is a God of wrath. He has rightful wrath that's not inconsistent or incompatible with his character. But, but why? What prompts that? Why is God's righteous anger being revealed? Look back at verse 18. It says, God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's the first point for us to unpack today, which is this, in our sinful nature, We suppress truth and reject God. What do I mean by that? The reason that God's wrath is being revealed is because if you zoom back all the way to the beginning of your Bible, right, we've all been there, we've all read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. God fashioned and formed the world. And as He did, it was good. And he made man in his image, man and woman, male and female, and he set them in the garden, and it was very good. And the purpose for all of this. This existence, this creation, this world, the reason that you and I are here, that we live and that we breathe, that God put humans on the face of the earth was to represent who he is, to magnify his character, to stand as a testament and a testimony to his awesome power, his nature, and to honor and glorify him as such. But we know the story, don't we? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, despite knowing God, despite experiencing God, despite enjoying God, instead chose to sin against God. They chose to ignore his command. They became convinced in the garden that somehow, despite everything that they knew about God, there was something more to be desired. For them, it was fruit. For us, it could be any number of different things. But the bent of the nature of people from Adam onward, was now sinful. Our sinful condition became the norm. From Adam onward, men and women, every single one of us, were born with a sinful nature. And that not only means that we're in need of redemption, but it means that that our bent is toward sin and not toward God, and that God is justified in his holy and righteous anger toward that sin. That's the starting point of the gospel. We're tainted by sin, all of us. And God has rightful wrath toward that Sin toward the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now, the natural argument that comes up after reading verse 18 is this. How could God hold me accountable for my sin? How can I I suppress the truth if I don't even know the truth? How would I know I was sinning against God and breaking his commands if I didn't even know who he was or know what his truth is? Wouldn't I, if I knew that there was a God and that I didn't measure up, wouldn't I stop what I was doing and pursue what's right? And the answer from Scripture is no. The answer from Scripture is no. Outside of Christ, man will not submit to God or embrace the truth. Man won't submit to the gospel. Man will not seek God or come to Christ because when presented with even less evidence of the reality of God and the finite nature of man, man still chooses to look past God toward himself suppress and reject the truth that can be seen. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 19 and 20 with me again. This is our condition as people. What do we do in our unrighteousness and ungodliness? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So verses 19 and 20, church, here, are one of the clearest arguments in Scripture for what we call general revelation. If you've been to C3 Institute, you've heard this. You've been made aware of the the types of revelation that are out there, general revelation, special revelation. Verses 19 and 20 are one of the clearest arguments that we have for general revelation, which is simply to say that these verses teach that the existence of God and some of his attributes can be known independent of what you have right here. You can. There are things that can be known about God independent of Scripture. God, through what he's made in creation, has evidenced the fact that he exists and that he's supremely powerful. This is affirmed here. It's affirmed in other places as well. You look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, say it says, The heavens declare... The glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. In other words, when you go outside at night, it's hard to do in Houston, right, with all our light pollution. If you've gone away from the city, you've gone out camping, you've gone out to West Texas, you look up at the night sky, the night sky is proclaiming that we are small and there is something more going on than us happening to just arrive on this rock circling the earth. Acts 14, God has allowed the nations. Acts 14 says, God has allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. What is the Bible telling us? What are we seeing here in Romans 1? What are we seeing in places like Psalm 19 and Acts 14? Acts 14. It's saying that if you go and and see the majesty of the mountains, or if you watch the miracle of birth, or if you go outside and see the expanse of the cosmos, or if you consider the depths of the oceans, they all scream at the fact that there is something beyond ourselves that contributed to everything that we see and experience. And it's not hard. You don't have to go outside and see the awe and the wonder of everything that's been created and feel small and wonder there has to be more going on here than simply the fact that it's Tuesday. Every attempt, church, to explain the origin of the universe, think about this, every attempt to explain the origin of the the universe and the existence of humans promoted by scientists exists because somewhere someone first believed There has to be an explanation outside of ourselves for how we got here. There's nothing I can see, experience, explain, or reach out and point to that makes sense of all of this. I must dig deeper. The itch to solve the riddle of our existence, even by those who reject God, is an evidence of the fact that he has placed eternity into the hearts of men and not left us without a witness. But even with all of that, everything that we see in general revelation, the conscience of man that we'll see in in Romans chapter 2, what do we as people do? Romans 1 says this, we reject and suppress what can be known about God, and instead of worshiping him, we turn to idols. That's what we see in verses 21 through 23, isn't it? Even people who might observe nature and, and, and go out and assume, okay, there's a creator What do they do? They turn around and fashion idols after men, after things that can be known. They create man-made deities that explain what they believe rather than to seek and know the one true God, if they even were to seek. And that's the best case, right? For most people, the awe and the incredible nature of what can be seen in the world causes people to turn around and assume the greatness of mankind, right? That's the world we live in right now. The pulse on the world is that man looks at himself and goes, we're great. Look at how much we've accomplished. Look at how much progress we've made. We can harness whatever we want to on the face of the earth. We have subdued creation. We control it. We are the final authority over all things. There's none greater than us. We've elevated ourselves so much that we've perverted our, our our role as caretakers of God's earth, and we've assumed that we are the final authority over all things in creation, and that somehow by our works, by our hand, by our ingenuity, by our ability, we will be able to solve anything that creation can throw at us. We are sovereign over all. We are by nature, as people, prone to create idols, to magnify something, to elevate something, to put someone, even ourselves, as the apex of creation, as the final authority, as the one to whom all things are accountable. Even the most powerful person in the world cannot shake their internal hardwiring to seek to find satisfaction and fulfillment in something. We are worshipful people. And if that worship, if that allegiance, if that elevation of things is not ultimately in God, then it will ultimately be in something else. It could be approval of people, it could be money, it could be a sense of inner peace, it could be reputation, status, title at work, appearance in the mirror. As verse 25 we'll see in just a minute, the unbelieving person is apt to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve that which is created rather than the creator. So how does that intersect general revelation here? How does that intersect the, the argument that we would have, which is that you know surely, if I knew there was a God, if I, if I could see the truth, surely I would, I would do something about it. Surely if he would just show up and write in the sky that he exists and what the plan is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be callous against that. No, what Paul is saying here in Romans is, even in the most basic evidences that exist, mankind looks at what God has made and assumes that worship of anything other than him is the aim of man. So even in general revelation, man will not submit to God. He won't won't honor God. He won't worship God. In conscience, creation, and more, the truth is that mankind was made to honor and glorify God, but in our sinful nature, the things that should incline us to recognize and worship God instead are used for self-serving gains. So why is the wrath of God being revealed against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man? It's because mankind, all of us, Without excuse, because even in what can be known and understood about God, we will choose to reject and worship the creation rather than the creator. Outside of Christ, we're we're without excuse. By our sinful nature and in our sin, we suppress the truth and reject God. It's a fun sermon, right? It's a pretty damning case for why the wrath of God is deserved supposed to be. I don't believe that, that God intends for us to read this and walk away from the sermon and feel good about ourselves and be able to sit back and go, well, that's, that's not me. That's everybody else. Surely you can't be talking about me. That's, I, I, I'm not that bad. That's, that's not where I am. I don't believe we walk away from a passage like this and, we're, and, and feel good about ourselves. But it also doesn't stop there. The case continues to be built. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed, and that's why it's deserved, but it doesn't discuss how the wrath of God is being revealed, right? How is it that God is presently bringing the consequence for sin, this deep, soul-level revelation-ignoring sin, into the lives of those who suppress the truth and live in unrighteousness and ungodliness? That's what we see starting in verse 24. Take a look there with me. It says, "Therefore." God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, before we get into the depths of this section and what follows, I think it's important to stop and clarify something, especially because what we've seen in Romans one lays the sentence of sin pretty equally and deeply upon all of us. So the idea of the doctrine of the depravity of man or total depravity, as you might hear it in circles in this church, is not that every person on the planet outside of Jesus is completely evil and as sinful as they can humanly be. We all know that to be true, right? I say that and, and that's not shocking not everybody on the planet is completely evil and as sinful as they could possibly be, right? I have friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, I imagine that you do, who the Bible would say have suppressed the truth about God, what can be known, but they're kind people, generous Self-sacrificing, hospitable, faithful to their spouses, good parents, diligent in their work, model citizens, moral people, that may even be you this morning. I don't know everyone's story in here. You may be sitting here this morning and you go, hey, I'm not entirely convinced that God exists. I'm here. I'm learning, questioning, trying to make sense of all of this. I'm not entirely sure that God exists not entirely sure that I've sinned against him. I'm not entirely sure Christ is the only way to be made right with God. And I hear what you're saying, Chris, but I'm not a bad person. Make it sound like every time I wake up in the morning, it's double middle fingers to the sky before I go about my business. But that's not who I am. That's not how I live. It's not what I do. And maybe as I, I said, friends or coworkers or family members, you all thought about someone in your life who you go, yeah, I know they don't know Jesus, but they're not a bad person. In fact, they're better than half the people I know who go to church from a horizontal relationship level. And listen, if that's you this morning, or if you're thinking about that person who is, quote, good, I want you to consider this. If the motivation for good moral behavior is not to please God, then the highest motivation of those actions is to satisfy your own set of ethics and moral standards. You have decreed what is right. And to yourself, you are being true. And God doesn't factor into that. You have made your personal morality the highest standard to which you are accountable. And because of that, even those good things are tainted by sin. Those things remain unrighteous before God, even if they are praiseworthy things by human standards, because the aim of those actions is not to honor and magnify Creator God. So, what do we do with that? Do we just burn this whole thing to the ground and say, well, then just let everybody sin as much as they want to? Who cares? It doesn't matter. No, I don't think so. I mean, we should certainly desire, right? That the unbelieving world around us be good. That it honor a godly type of morality. We shouldn't celebrate evil. We should want for our kids and our friends and our neighbors to grow up in a world where the common grace of God, the goodness of God is on display. We should love that people around us share common values. But more than all of that, we should desire that people would know the one true God who can save them from their sin and bring them into right relationship with him. So why give that caveat? Why give that caveat about the depravity of man and how everything is still tainted by sin And even if people are not ultimately as evil as they could be? It's because what we'll begin packing in verses 24 and following is simply this that in our suppressing the truth, this is your second point, in our suppressing the truth and rejecting God, we will be given over to the desires of our heart. Look back at verses 24 and 25. It says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What Paul is saying here in these verses is that Because of our sinful nature, we are bent toward finding satisfaction in anything and everything other than the one true thing that can truly satisfy our soul, which is Christ. And if that's true, church, if that's true, that in our sinful nature, we are bent toward finding satisfaction in anything and everything other than the one true thing which can satisfy our souls, then one of the worst things that could happen to us is that we would be allowed to run as far as we can down the path of having our desires met in things which will only lead to death and dissatisfaction. Does that make sense to you? If our greatest soul level fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, purpose is to be found in Jesus, then one of the most damning things that could happen to us is that we would be allowed to run as hard and fast as our hearts will allow us to go away from that truth because nothing down that path will ever satisfy. And that's what Paul's saying here, that God's wrath is being played out in the world against the sinfulness of man by God giving us the freedom to run as far away from him and toward other things as our hearts will desire. It's a removal of restraint. Think about it like this, when our daughter Evelyn was old enough to walk and then discovered how to open up doors, what did we do? If you've got kids at home, what do you do when kids figure out how to open up cabinets and open up doors? Safety locks. Oh my goodness, safety locks. Thank you Jesus Or safety locks, right? Because Evelyn, when the doors were accidentally left open or she was left alone for more than two seconds, literally two seconds, that's all it takes. You know this if you have children. It's like, how did you, where where did, impossible, right? More than two seconds, she would do a number of equally disgusting, frustrating, or dangerous things, including, number one, playing in the cat's litter box. Yes, that's what I mean. Playing in the toilet, when you have children who don't flush the toilet at home, who are older than their younger sister, that's also gross. Or three, my parents would say that this is my contribution genetically to the family, climbing the shelves in the pantry, which is fine until they manage to get to the glass and the heavy objects, which are supposed to be high enough that no one can get to them, But apparently, your two-year-old has incredible climbing skills. Now, did I have to train or teach Evelyn to do any of those things? No, not at all. It was in her heart's desire to pursue all of those things, as yucky and gross as they are. But as a grace to her, what did we do as parents? We restrained her behavior and did not allow her to do what was in her heart to do. Didn't matter that we told her no, we did. Didn't matter that we gave her consequences for those things, we did. They certainly helped curb some of her choices, but the reality is if you've ever met a two-year-old, you know that sometimes they can be particularly persistent and insist upon doing what is in their heart to do. If you know my children, And my genetic makeup, you know that two-year-olds can be very persistent. It's 100% me. It's not my wife. But consider this with me. What if, as a punishment to Evelyn, in order to say, you know what, I'm going to let you experience real consequence for your actions, I decided to say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to get rid of the the doorknobs little safety knobs, just help yourself to whatever you want to do. I wouldn't open the doors for her. I would just give her the freedom to explore what her heart wanted to do. At best, there would be some really frustrating, gross, and yucky messes for my wife and I to clean up. And at worst, she could make herself very sick or seriously injure or kill herself. Now, on some level, this analogy breaks down, doesn't it? No parent is going to roll up to a parenting conference and be like, you know, my kid is, uh, my kid just, you know, to make sure they understand and never get into the pantry before, I just leave the door open. I let them climb in there and, like, throw glass from the top shelf. No one's looking at that and going, that's so enlightened. 2021 parenting, good job. Like, no, like, no, no parent's justified in doing that. Whereas God is perfectly just in giving us up to what we're inclined to do in our sinful nature, but the principle is still the same. The wrath of God is being shown against sinful man because he says, I will give you the freedom to do what is in your heart to do. And if I do that, you're not running toward me. You will go down the path of whatever your heart is inclined to do. For some people, that will mean being the most outstanding moral citizen who doesn't know Jesus, For some people, you'll murder, kill, rape, ignore, belittle, do the greatest of evils. So the wrath of God is being shown toward sinful man by allowing them, verse 24, to experience whatever the passions of their hearts are inclined to. To do. This idea is repeated again and in, in places. We'll see it as we move through it. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to debased minds to do what? To do what ought not to be done, to act, to believe, to think out of what is ultimately wrong, to desire to do. In all instances, what Paul is saying here is that it is a punishment to people because it is allowing them to explore the depths of their idolatry of their heart. the outplaying of that consequence for sin, this display of wrath, is precisely what we see in the rest of this chapter starting in verse 26. What does it mean then? What does it look like for God then to give people up to the desires of their heart? Let's take a look at verse 26 and following. It says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. But outside of Jesus, that's what we see. That's what we see in the world around us. This was written 2,000 years ago, but it is just as rev- relevant today as it was then. It's what we see. We turn on the news. Watch social media. Conversations with people. This is the world around us today. Mankind is driven in his sinful nature to multiply wickedness. And so the third thing I want us to see this morning is that in being given the desires of our heart, we will run further into sin. It's a cycle, isn't it? Do you see that? In our sinful nature, we reject God and suppress the truth. We exchange it for a life of pursuing satisfaction and worshiping other things. As a consequence for that sin, we're given over to our sinful desires to pursue them as far as we want, which leads us deeper into sin, which causes us to continue to reject the truth of God. That's why as many people get older, they get more and more numb to the sin they're willing to explore and tolerate in their life. Because it's a cycle. And that's not just true for, for those outside of Jesus. I think for many of us who maybe have grown up in church and no one trusts Jesus, but have walked through seasons of extended unrepentance, extended sin, we can end up in that same cycle as well, where we become more numb and more numb and more numb to the sin that ensnares. And so God, as God gives people up to the desires of their hearts, the ability to run further Further into sin is great. And Paul lists out several ways in which that takes place that are really listed out to show the depths that man is willing to go in his unrighteousness, right? Like these lists of sinful behaviors that we saw here in verses twenty six through thirty two, they don't shock us or show us our desperate need as as people to be reconciled to Christ if it says God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to drinking an extra beer at the end of the day because it was a stressful day at work. God gave them up to the, the lust of their hearts so that they'd be a little stingy with their money. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to overeating when they go out to eat or to cussing at people on I-45 because we all know that in Houston, the speed limit is 10 over what's posted, right? It's just fact, Okay? Like that list wouldn't shock us if that was what we saw here. That would not convince us of our need for a savior. I almost wish though, to be honest with you, that it did. Because think about how many people in the world around us and in this room, myself included, because of permissible, culturally acceptable, pedestrian, super simple, Laugh at it, chuckle about it, because it's really not that big of a deal kind of sin. Perpetuate a lifestyle that misses out on the goodness of enjoying Jesus to the fullest extent because we allow and permit minor sin. I almost wish that was a list here, but that's not what we see. We see things that for many of us we go, that's not true of me. I believe the Bible would say that may not be true of you, but outside of Jesus, it is in your heart to do all of that and more. And so we see these kinds of sins. There's verse 24, there's heterosexual perversion, and there's homosexual perversion, and there's debased minds that are filled with evil and all manner of unrighteousness, murderous, deceitful, ruthless, and more. And worst of all, verse 32, endorsing and celebrating the pursuit of sin in the lives of people. But a question I think we have to engage this morning is why Paul, when exploring the depths of man's depravity, where he's willing to go, leads off and spends so much time on sexual sin and specifically homosexuality. And I'm mindful parents. We've got students in here, so I'll be careful. But let's be clear. Kids in elementary school are being exposed to and dealing with questions of gender identity, same-sex attraction, exposure, Forms of pornography, this is no longer an issue for adults. The perversion of God's design for gender, attraction, marriage, sex is rampant in our world and it's hitting people in every stage of life urban areas, rural areas, developed countries, third world countries, children, adults. And so when we come across texts in scripture that speak to these things, we have to take a moment to stop and to engage what the Bible says and let it shape how we believe and how we practice because. Because this is truth. I know that's not popular today. It's not, this is truth. Your experience is not truth. Your friend's experience is not truth. What has historically happened is not truth. Feelings are not truth. What you see on social media is not truth. Certainly those things can have truth in them. Those things can shape things can inform. Those things can provide perspective. But when it comes to what I must believe, when it comes to what is right and good, when it comes to what I must practice lest I be found to be wrong, this is the final authority. This is the final filter. And so that clashes, right, with the thinking of the world right now. It's going to continue to do so. We live in an age, this age may not last forever, we live in an age where personal, subjective, relative, experiential, truth is the final authority. We live in an age where my belief about what is right, and good, and true, is what is true. And especially as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm entitled to believe what I want to believe. And you can't tell me otherwise. And yet, as believers, we must continually, whether it's in our own lives or in the, the world around us, we must continue to come back to Scripture, to Christ, as truth. And I don't know how that hits you this morning, because I know that that's not popular. But no one who has ever read this has walked away and said, my aim as a believer in Jesus Christ is to be popular, to be faithful. And so I want to do that. So, so what do we do? What do we do with this, Right? What do you do with the Bible's teaching on sexual sin, specifically homosexuality, here in chapter one? You can't escape it, right? It's there. You deal with it. Talking about sins of men. It's talking about unrighteousness and ungodliness. It's listed out in there. So what do we do with that? First, I think we need to recognize that neither here nor elsewhere in Scripture is homosexuality singled out as the only kind of sinful sexual perversion. It's one of many, and all of them are against God's design and intention for sex. Listen, church, the adulterer, the promiscuous person, the man or woman caught in the snares of pornography, the homosexual are all stepping outside of God's design and desire for sex. One is not worse than the other. One shouldn't be singled out at the expense of others. One should not become the focus of our attention and our preaching and our politicizing versus caring deeply for people who are stuck in any type of sexual sin. There are snares there. Many of you have walked through them or seen them or, or know someone who has. How dare we as a church say, well because your sin looks like this, somehow you're worse off. Somehow that's worse. Somehow, somehow this is better than that. As a believing community, when we see people who are caught in any kind of sexual sin. And Paul doesn't discriminate. All kinds are listed out here. We should be broken and say, there's one remedy for that. It's Jesus. So whatever your baggage is, whatever your story, whatever your snares, maybe it isn't that. Maybe it's something different. Maybe you're a gossip. Maybe you're hateful and, and spiteful. Maybe you're irresponsible with money. Your hope is Jesus. That's the answer. So there have been times, as we look at this passage, we consider this, this topic, we consider this sin. Church, there have been times where an unfair burden has been placed on people who struggle with same-sex attraction or acting out homosexuality uh, sexuality as a pattern of lifestyle as though this particular sin is worthy of greater condemnation. You understand that, right? Like, we're not unaware of that. Like, that has happened. Sometimes it has been singled out and condemned at the expense of calling out known patterns of sexual sin in the lives of other people. Listen, church, if we want to be faithful believers, we have to understand that the Scripture teaches clearly that while homosexuality is a sin, it's not worse sin than any other sin. Outside of Jesus, it's not any worse sin than anything else. And teaching or suggesting or practicing our behavior as such is out of line with Scripture. So as people who know Jesus and know that outside of Christ we're all bent towards sin, we have to destigmatize homosexuality as a particular sin without endorsing it. Now, unfortunately, you've got the flip side of that, right? You've got many people in the church today who've overreacted to the sins of Christians in the past and have bowed to culture on this particular issue and ignore clear teaching of Scripture and instead endorse and celebrate homosexuality as a normal practice for believers, even pastors. Major denominations in our country have split or are about to split over this issue. And that's not the right answer either. So where's the appropriate balance? What do we do with this? I think the balance is this, which is where I also believe we should land after this passage of Scripture as a takeaway for us, and then we're done. Paul didn't have to choose the sin lists that he wrote in here, but he chose these. The answer for whatever is in Romans chapter one is always the gospel. Always the gospel. That's always the answer. The gospel says that unrighteousness and ungodliness and sin is costly. The gospel says that Christ paid that debt for us. So when we encounter people in this world who are caught in the cycle of sin that we see in Romans 1, we recognize that we too were like them at one point. This is my story as much as it is yours. Chapter 1 is pretty bleak, but we know that the good news for those whose lives are marked by sin and disconnection from God is that there is one who can make a way there is one who can overcome the deep desire of the heart to run away from God toward the passions of one's idolatrous heart and rewire the brokenness of man so that instead of longing for sin, he longs for a Savior. That's Christ. The biggest need that the world has around us, whether they're struggling with Homosexuality or being moral but absent from God is not to stop sinning, it's to know Jesus. The biggest need for the world around us is to be reconciled to the one who removes our sin as far as east is from the west and sanctifies us so that the sinful nature no longer has a a grasp on our soul. The homosexual, the adulterer, the moral person who doesn't know Jesus all need the same thing. They need liberation from sin and reconciliation to Christ. So, that's good news for all of us this morning, isn't it? That's good news for all of us this morning. Because no matter our burden, no matter what our sin involves, there is one who can save. There is one who can remove the penalty of sin and free us from the cycle of sin that ensnares. His name is Jesus the end of chapter one in Romans here, it looks pretty bleak if you don't know the rest of the story. But we know the rest of the story. Our sinful nature, our condition, our fallenness, our brokenness doesn't get the final say. There's one who rescues and redeems. And he invites us, all who trust in him, to come near and exchange their ungodliness and unrighteousness for pardon and freedom and hope. Would you cling to that today as your hope, Christian? As you consider the depth of your own sin and what Jesus overcame for you that you might have life. Would you come to him today, you who walk in unbelief, and recognize that you will always be searching for something which satisfies, but never find it outside of Christ. Bring your burden, bring your sin, great and small he lives to save for as we saw in Romans 1:16 the gospel is the power of god for salvation to all who believe let's pray King Jesus, thank you for saving us. This is my story too. This is all of our stories. In our unrighteousness, in our brokenness, in our sin, we run from you. And our sin can look so many different ways, but the reality is, Outside of Jesus stepping in and being the sacrifice for us, none of us could be made right. And so that's a hard truth for us to to remember and to imagine sometimes. But the good news is this you don't grow tired or weary, your patience doesn't run short. You live to save, you live to redeem. And so as people who've been redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus, I pray we would celebrate today that the depths of our sin, the depths of wickedness to which our hearts can go is a depth that you can rescue from. And I hope that that would give us encouragement, King Jesus, for the world around us as well. That if you could conquer that sin inside of us, there is none who is too far to save. We believe in the bigness of who you are, Jesus, and your great love for us and ability to save. We celebrate that together this morning.